If you uh, are new with us or if you've been gone for a couple of weeks, we are still in Exodus, right? If you've been gone for a couple of weeks and you came back this morning, maybe you thought that, oh, maybe they're out of Exodus now. Well, you thought wrong. We are still in Exodus. This morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. This chapter is the shortest chapter we've gone through so far, so one of my goals is to make this one of the shortest shortest sermons so far. But Exodus chapter 11, Um, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn there and hold hold your place. And then we will read that together here in just a moment. This text is, is, is kind of unique in the narrative of Exodus so far. We've gone through nine plagues, and then Exodus 11 breaks in, and it covers a lot of content that's already been covered in Exodus. But it's the announcement of another plague. Right? We've gone through plagues one through nine, and there's not been like this massive, grandiose announcement like we're going to see in Exodus chapter 11. And so we, we need to, to do some work to understand the importance of Exodus 11. Why is so much time dedicated to announcing a plague? This plague is specific. The plague that's going to come is specific, and it is going to be the most severe of all the plagues. Uh, the theologian Vody Bauckham says we've got to understand Exodus 11 so that we can understand the Passover, so that we can understand salvation, and so we can understand the, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And so um, this is a short and limited text on its number of verses, but also in the scope of its content. Like I said, it's, it covers, and, and it's Yahweh breaking into the, the narrative here, and he's reminding Moses of some things that he's already told him. And then he's going to give Moses a final word to Pharaoh before Moses departs from Pharaoh. So if you are able, would you please stand with me as we receive the word of God together? Exodus chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of God, brothers and sisters. It is true and it is good. You may be seated. Father, we ask that in this moment and in this time that you would give us your help. You have given us your word. It is powerful in its truth. It is powerful in its beauty and it's powerful in its goodness. So would you work mightily in us by the power of your spirit this morning just as you have promised that you would do. 
You have promised that your word will not return void. So this morning, would you attend the preaching of the scriptures, your scriptures? Would you help us to be impacted by it? Would you help us to not, conf- not try to conform the text to our lives, but help us to conform our lives to the text? We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he gave himself up for us, that he rose again on our, on our behalf, and now he is seated at your right hand, and he rules and reigns over all creation and intercedes for us. So it's in the name of Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. I remember when I was a kid, I was probably about 11 or 12 years old, and I was going to go hang out with my friend and his family. We were going to go bowl or go to an arcade and see a movie and go out to dinner and some stuff like that. So my parents gave me a crisp $20 bill for me to use for my expenses for this trip. And so I tried to give the money to my, my friend's mom and said, hey, my parents gave me this money for me to give to you to pay for all the fun stuff that we have done. And my friend's mom, being generous, she said, no, we, wanna, we want to pay for uh, your time with us. You, you don't, we don't need that money. And I'm like, well, my mom said to give this money to you, so you've got to take it. She said, I'm not going to take it. In that moment, I saw an opportunity to devise quite the plan. Like in my mind, I was trying to like steal a declaration of independence or I'm trying to pull some Ocean's Eleven type heist. And so in this moment, I thought, you know what? I could just pocket this $20 bill, save it until a later time, maybe around my, the time of my birthday when people are already giving me money, I can just sneak this $20 bill into a, a card and be like, oh, look at this $20 bill. Where did this come from? And so the, the story goes, I go back home and uh, my, they, my friend's parents drop me off, and I go and talk to my parents, and, uh, and then I you know, go in, and my parents give you, you know, the grand inquisition that you always do on your children when they come home from some event. You know, how was it? What did you eat? What did you do? Who did, who did you see? So on and so forth. And my parents said, hey, do you, like, if you're a kid who's been given money, you know what the question that's about to come. Do you have any change left over from the money that I gave you? Uh, no, it was, I just, uh, there's no change left. Uh, in fact, Lisa wouldn't let me uh, pay her, so I, I hid the $20 bill in the back of their car. And I've seen my parents pull a stunt like this before. Like, they try to pay somebody for something, and they won't, the person won't take it, so my parents hide it somewhere, like in their pantry or in their towel closet. My parents would do this all the time, and so I thought, well, I can leverage this appearance of good for evil. So I said, yeah, it's in the back of the car. And my, my parents, they call my friend's mom and say, hey, thanks so much for taking Andrew with you. He told us that you wouldn't uh, take the money, but he said that he put it in the back of the car. Uh-oh. So my friend's mom, she goes and looks in the car, and it's not there. My parents say, hey, uh, are you sure you put it in the car? Because we can't find it. And I say, oh, yeah, you know what? I actually put it in one of the drawers in their kitchen. I forgot about that. We took a little detour to their house, and I, I hid it in one of the drawers. And so they say, oh, Andrew said he put it in the, in the drawer by the ice maker. So my friend's parents, they go and look, and lo and behold, it's not there either. My parents say, hey, what's up? What's going on here? Are you telling the truth? I say, yeah, you know what? I actually, I don't remember where I put it. I could have lost it in the parking lot on the way, you know, the short walk from the car and the curb to our front door. I'm not sure. I, let me think about it later. And so cut to the next scene. I feel like I'm in some old school detective show, and the, the, I'm sitting at the table across from the cop, and my dad's shining the light in my eyes, and my mom's, you know, grilling me screaming at me to tell the truth, banging on the table. That's when I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm going through. And then I finally break. I finally break. And they said, I said, I tried to give them money, but they wouldn't let me pay for it. So I decided to keep the money instead. And so it was probably like 9.30, 9.45 at night. My dad drives me to my, parents, my, my friend's parents' house, about 15-minute drive in the middle of the night, and makes me apologize. 
And it was at that point that I finally repented. It was at that point I finally relented and told the whole, whole truth. I was being held accountable for lying to my parents and lying to my friend's parents. I tell this goofy story because we have been looking at Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has been given multiple chances to let God's people go. Multiple chances. God has been doing battle against Pharaoh's gods. God has been doing battle against the gods of Egypt, and he has been destroying them. He's been picking them off left and right. When is enough going to be enough for Pharaoh to relent and to let Yahweh's people go? You would think whenever uh, the great body of water, this great river that nourishes your land gets turned to blood and it kills off all the fish in there, you would think at, at that point you would say, okay, that's enough, I'm good. But no, he continues to have a hard heart. He continues to resist the voice of Yahweh. He continues to say, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? The plagues get worse and worse and worse and worse, and yet Pharaoh will not relent. When is enough going to be enough for this man? When will he obey the voice of Yahweh? Because you remember, that is his primary question. Okay, Moses, you're telling me to obey the voice of Yahweh. Who is Yahweh and why should I obey him? I am a god. I have all the gods of Egypt on my side. Why should I listen to the the God of Israel? And so Yahweh has been showing him, this is why you should listen to me, Pharaoh. This is why you should obey my voice. Our text this morning points to the fact that Pharaoh is about to relent. He's about to give up. He's about to finally obey the voice of Yahweh. He's about to finally let go of the people of Israel. And so this chapter is important because it highlights the importance of the severity of this final plague. This chapter is important because it shows us once again that Yahweh is going to make a distinction between his people and the people of Israel. Now, as I was preparing and studying for this text, it's really hard for me not to jump over into chapter 12 and preach next week's sermon. So this sermon might feel slightly incomplete, and that's going to be all right. Don't worry, the gospel is still going to be communicated here. So you gospel-centered people, don't worry. We're going to preach the whole counsel of God's scripture this morning. Don't worry. Don't freak out. But I don't want to take the wind out of the sails of next week's sermon because this chapter serves as a buildup. We've got buildups in song that that prepare you for the climax of the song. Chapter 12 and the Passover event is going to be the climax that causes Pharaoh to let go of the people of Israel. It's going to be the crescendo of this story so far that the people of Israel are finally going to exit Egypt. So stick with me as we look through uh, chapter 11 together. What I'm going to do, real, we're going to walk through these, uh, this, this text in a, in a few chunks. And then I, what I really want to do is, how, how are we supposed to live then? Right? If you read this text, you're wondering, well, where do I fit at in this story? So another one of my goals for this sermon is to kind of put a bow on what we've looked at as far as spiritual warfare, what it looks like as far as idolatry, and what we've talked about in, in regards to repentance and seeking to have your heart softened. That's what we're going we're gonna to do this morning. Like I said, I want to I make this shorter than what I've preached, how I've preached in the past. So verses 1 through 3, this text picks up right from where last week left off. This, this, these verses are actually kind of like a parenthetical statement. It's this interruption of the narrative. Remember last week we looked at Pharaoh had just told Moses that I better not see your face again when you leave here. Because if I do, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you if you come back here again. Because Pharaoh's supreme, the supreme God of Egypt had just been defeated, and Pharaoh was upset. And even though he was upset, he was not willing to relent. 
And so Moses is still having this conversation with Pharaoh. He's not departed from Pharaoh. This is not like a separate encounter and Pharaoh went back on his word. This is a break in the narrative. Right? It's, it's a break in a narrative that, that reflects this conversation between Moses and between Yahweh. And Yahweh breaks in and he speaks to Moses and tells him, Moses, remember, I talked to you earlier about this one final plague that was to come. Moses didn't know how many plagues were going to be executed. He didn't know how long this time was going to last, but he knew, he knew that one plague was going to end it all. He knew that there was going to come a plague where Yahweh was going to take the firstborn from every household in Egypt, and he knew that upon that, Pharaoh would finally relent. Pharaoh would finally let the people of Israel go out and worship their God and to exit from slavery. Exodus 4, through 23, it records this first revelation. Thus says the Lord, this is Yahweh speaking to Moses, tell, tell Pharaoh this. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my firstborn son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Yahweh has spent time putting to shame the rulers of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, and he's telling Moses, Moses, now is the time. It's time to set this final plague in motion. You need to tell Pharaoh these things. So Yahweh gives him this reminder so that he would know what to do, how he would begin the process of leading God's people out of Egypt. And so that's why you see this, uh, this weird stuff about, hey, Moses, speak now to, in the hearing of the people. Right, so speak to the Israelites and tell them it's almost time. It's almost time to go. So tell the men to ask their neighbors for silver and tell the women to ask their neighbors for gold jewelry. That seems kind of weird. But if you think about it, these people have been enslaved for 400 years. They didn't have a lot of resources. They barely had enough to get by in Egypt. So if they were going to go out and start this new nation state out of the people of Israel, they were going to need some resources to be able to go out and to create things, to go out and to survive and flourish and build things to the Lord to worship him. And so he's saying, this is what, we're getting ready, guys. It's time to go make some withdrawals. And so the Lord gives the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So God is, is doing battle against the gods of Egypt. He's doing battle against Pharaoh. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh is hardening his heart as well. And yet he somehow is giving, he's softening the, the minds and the hearts of the Egyptians a little. So much so that they're not going in, the Hebrews are not going in and stealing stuff from their neighbors, but they are going up to their neighbors, and their neighbors are so fearful at what Yahweh can do and will do and what he has done that they readily give to the, their Hebrew neighbors what they ask for. Yahweh is preparing his people. He has given his people favor in the sight of the Egyptian, and he is preparing them. He's not sending them out without anything he is making sure they are taken care of. He is showing his people favor to once again remind Egypt and to remind Pharaoh that Yahweh's people are distinct, that Yahweh's people belong to Yahweh, and that he would show their difference among Egypt and among the nations. And so we, we continue on here in Exodus, and we, we look at um, the, the fact that Moses was also made prominent that people looked to Moses and said, oh, this, this is Yahweh's earthly representative. This dude, when he says something's going to happen, it happens. Whenever he shows a sign, something always happens every time he does it. And so he became a prominent person in the, in the eyes of the Egyptians. Right? Our text says, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So even Pharaoh's own posse looked at, looked at Moses and said, this dude is legit. 
This dude, he makes things happen. This dude does not give up. He continues. He perseveres. And so Yahweh is he's causing the Egyptians and Pharaoh's servants to look at Moses and to look at the rest of the Hebrew people so that they would be released. And then we, we move on to, to verse 4. It says, so Moses reminds Pharaoh what's going to happen. He tells Pharaoh what's going to happen. So Moses, um, he's still in Pharaoh's Still in Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh just said, dude, I'm going to kill you if I see you again. And so Moses kind of, and one commentator says, it's like, this statement that comes from Moses is as if Moses was walking out the door and he turns around and says, oh, by the way, this is what's up. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, at about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill." and all the firstborn of the cattle. So he's saying, Pharaoh, Yahweh himself is going to come down this time. This plague that is to come is distinct in, in a few areas. The first way is the specificity of the target, the recipients of the plague. Yes, this plague still has ramifications and impacts and effects for, throughout, for every individual in Egypt, but he is going specifically after the firstborn. Why is he doing that? Why is Yahweh going to go after the firstborn? Well, he's going after the firstborn because if you remember earlier on in Exodus, he refers to Israel, to the people, uh, uh, the, the people of Israel as his firstborn son. So you see this tale of two firstborns going on here. You've got Egypt's firstborn and you've got Yahweh's firstborn. You've got these two nations, these two people groups. And Yahweh's people have been mistreated. They've been enslaved. They've been killed. They've been murdered. They've been oppressed. And so Yahweh is going to go after the firstborn of Egypt. Because firstborns, they were, they were important, and especially in this time frame. Right? In, the, in a patriarchal society back here, whenever the, the dad was the commander of the house, he was the commander of, of tribes, and he was commander of the, the, the extended family, the firstborn son had a prominent role in society as well because whenever the father would pass away, he would be the next inheritor to the authority of the family. And Pharaoh, his firstborn son, was going to be the inheritor of the throne of Egypt, and he would become an incarnate God that ruled and reigned over Egypt. And so Yahweh has defeated Ra. Remember last week we looked at Ra, the sun god, who would go and do battle in the underworld, and then whenever the sun would rise, it was a sign that Ra was victorious over defeating chaos and defeating the underworld. But what happened? There was three days of darkness. Darkness so dark that you could feel it. Darkness so dark that you couldn't see the person to the next of you. This was utter chaos for the people of Egypt. And so Yahweh has just gone after Pharaoh's daddy. And now he is going to go after the firstborn. He is going to go after the inheritor of the throne. He is going after Pharaoh's heritage. And this is what Egypt has been doing to Yahweh's heritage. Here we look, when we started the series, we looked at Deuteronomy 32, post-tower of Babel, where Yahweh disinherits the nations, but he chooses Israel as his people. They are my inheritance. They are my heritage. They are my people. I'm going to covenant only with this people. They are going to be my, my new creation, and they're going to go out and be my ambassadors throughout the nations. They were his firstborn son. And so Yahweh is going after Pharaoh. He's going after Egypt for their sin of oppressing Yahweh's firstborn. 
So he's going after Pharaoh. He's going after his throne. He's also judging the people of Egypt at large for their complicity and from, and from them being a part of oppressing the people of Yahweh. Pharaoh, the first Pharaoh, this is a different Pharaoh than we looked at in, in earlier on in Exodus. That dude died. But that first Pharaoh, he wanted to kill the Hebrew boys because he was fearful. And so he told the Hebrew midwives to perform abortions if it wasn't a boy, kill the firstborn, kill the boys of the Hebrews. But they feared God more than they feared Yahweh, before they, more than they feared Pharaoh, and so they, they deceived Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh says, well, I guess that plan didn't work. So if you're an Egyptian citizen, throw Hebrew boys, newborn boys, into the Nile. And so God is enacting judgment not just on Pharaoh but on Egypt specifically for them killing Hebrew boys, for persecuting his firstborn son. This, the target of this is important for us to understand. Right? It's important for us to understand that God is just not willy-nilly going about and killing people. He is completely just in what he is doing. And we'll talk about, about that a little bit more in here in a second. But th- another reason this plague is specific and different is that Moses and Aaron, they do nothing but announce this plague. Previously, they were performing signs, or Moses was picking up some ash and doing a LeBron James, and the ash was going up in the sky, or he was saying things, or he was raising his hands up. Moses and Aaron, they don't do anything but announce what is to come. This plague is specific in that Yahweh himself is coming down to Egypt. He's going to go out in the midst of Egypt. If I'm Pharaoh, I'm going to be looking for another change of clothes. If, if Moses and Aaron performing some signs and Yahweh making things happen was bad enough, then Yahweh himself coming down to Egypt is going to be even worse. It's going to be even worse, the fact that Yahweh is going to visit Egypt. He's going to go out the, in the midst of Egypt not just his representatives on earth, but he himself is going to do the work of the final plague. You would think that would be enough to cause Pharaoh to relent, but yet he did not. So that's why this is important, right? I want to go on and preach uh, Exodus 12, but we can't do that, so we're building up a little tension here. But keep in mind that this next plague is going to be revealed next week. Yahweh himself is the one coming down and doing work. Everything that Moses and Aaron had done was was perfect and it was good because Yahweh had told them to perform these signs, but Yahweh now is going to come down and finish the job himself. And we're going to see him do something quite miraculously. Remember, he said he was going to make a distinction between his people. Just with the rest of the plagues, things down in Goshen were good. Egypt was in turmoil and chaos and Goshen was ordered and it was good. The Israelites were comfortable in Goshen. They were not suffering the effects of the plagues. And Yahweh is going to even more miraculously show his distinction of his people. And he says that not even a dog is going to bark against Yahweh's people when Yahweh visits. It's not like some cute little uh, golden doodle barking. There used to be like feral packs of dogs that would roam the nights. People weren't domesticating a whole lot of dogs and animals. So these feral dogs that would bark at anything, they would bark at an ant. They're not going to bark against God's people. This is God showing his utter distinction that he is going to make between his people and the people of Egypt. In verses 8 through 10, they, they finish out the narrative here. And all these your servants, this is Moses talking to Pharaoh still, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land. 
And so this is a, su- a summary right here of all that's taken place. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. So the, the, the continual harassment, the continual shame that is being heaped on Pharaoh just seems like it can't even get worse. Like this plague is going to happen and that's going to be bad. But on top of that, all the people who were serving Pharaoh, they were now going to bow down to Moses in acknowledgement that Yahweh was supreme, in acknowledgement that Yahweh had defeated their gods. He had defeated everything that they had stood for, that Yahweh alone was powerful. And so that's just the, the shame and the, and, and the utter desolation of Pharaoh just continues. It's pouring salt in the wound to show Pharaoh, this is why you should have listened to me, Pharaoh. This is why you should have obeyed my voice because I am the God of God, gods. I am the king of kings and I am the Lord of lords. You must obey me for this alone. But Pharaoh, he didn't listen to this. He didn't listen to this. He continued in his stubborn ways. He continued in his rebellion to Yahweh. He continued to show the irrational nature of a hardened heart. And Yahweh tells, tells Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to you. And he's not going to listen to you so that my wonders, so that my glory, so that my renown, so that my praise, so that my fame, so that my reputation may be multiplied in all of Egypt. Remember, Yahweh could have struck down Pharaoh in Egypt right at the, right at the get-go. He didn't need to perform any plagues. But he is going through this process to set Pharaoh up to continually knock him down. He is going to show that he is supreme. And he wants the Egyptians to know that he is the God, that he is the Lord, that he is different, that he is distinct, that he is ultimately powerful and supreme. And so Moses and Aaron, they did everything that the Lord had told them to do, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he didn't let the people go. So what are, what are we to do, to do with this? How do, we, how do we apply this text in our lives? Well, there's a, a couple of ways that I, I think we, we need to think about this text. This text is not about Jesus, but it for sure points us to Jesus. As Christians, we live post-cross, we live post-resurrection, and so we can't help but look at the Old Testament and see where this leads us to Jesus, right? Chapter 12, that perfectly points us to Jesus, but my hands are a little tied this morning, but it points us to Jesus, and this informs how we are to live. We're not just to read this and be like, oh, well, stinks for Pharaoh, glad I'm not Pharaoh, glad I'm not an Egyptian, um, so I'll just go on. I think in, in how this summarizes the, the total plague event, this shows us the irrationality of a hardened heart. This shows us that that if you have a hard heart, that if you're hardening your heart, that if you're increasing your stubbornness to the Lord, you are irrational. There is no rationality in having a hard heart. We see this Pharaoh is continually, continually resisting the Lord. The Lord had given him multiple chances, multiple chances, and yet he still would not relent. He was still would not let the people of Israel go. He was willing to sacrifice the waters of Egypt to show his stubbornness to remain undefeated from Yahweh, but Yahweh defeated that. He was willing to have the crops of Egypt sacrificed to be stubborn and to have a hardened heart. He was willing to have all of the economy of Egypt crashed and tanked to have a hard heart, to not resist, to not relent, to not be obedient to the voice of Yahweh. He was marked by irrationality. 
And the first Pharaoh was also marked by irrationality. He was so fearful that these people, this little group of people, were going to overtake Egypt and his throne that that led him to sin. He had this hard, stubborn heart that he was willing to do anything to secure his authority and secure his throne. These men believed that they were gods. They believed that they were gods reincarnate, that they were gods incarnate. And we might chuckle at that as people who live in 2019, but you can't tell me I can't tell myself that I've never tried to deify myself, that you have never tried to deify yourself. It doesn't mean you're doing some weird uh, ritual where you're offering sacrifices to yourself or you're doing weird stuff or wearing some fancy clothes for some initiation. But God, the God of the Bible, the God of the world, he sets the standards for how we are to live, right? He, he has set forth a path for us to walk in holiness and in imaging him. And so anytime we deviate from that, we are trying to deify ourselves. It's like the original sin. They didn't just want to be made in God's image. They wanted to be God's themselves. They wanted to rebel. They, they said, Yahweh, yeah, you've told us you, you want to mature us. You want to grow us. You want to teach us good and what is bad. But we want to, we want to go about it a different way. We, we've heard this dude over here, this, this shining thing, the serpent, and he was talking to us. And he said, I know a shortcut to knowing good and knowing bad. I know how you can grow ultimately wise. God, see, God just told you these things because he wants you to, uh, he, he just wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you at this level when you can really be at this level. And so they subverted the Lord's plans. They deified themselves. They wanted to raise themselves up to this level. So we, 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 we make ourselves gods and we worship ourselves and we orient our lives around ourselves so that others would worship us. This is irrational because our knowledge is finite because our power is limited. We are not gods. We are not the Lord. We must obey his voice. We must not be like Pharaoh in that regard. When we harden our hearts, we show how irrational we truly are. The second thing, we must see the communal effects of a hardened heart. We touched on this a little bit last week. But when we harden our hearts, when we deify ourselves, when we subvert the Lord's plan, when we choose to sin, we think our sin doesn't impact anyone. And if it does impact someone, then it's just, it just impacts us. And that's a lie from hell. Sin does not care about its surroundings. Sin does not care what color you are, how much money you make. It doesn't care how many family members you have. It doesn't care if you're single. It doesn't care if you're married. Sin impacts the people around the person who is committing the sin. We, we, we say to ourselves, oh, a little bit of a little bit of lust here, a little bit of this substance here, a little bit of this greed here, a little bit of this pride here, a little bit of this slander here, it won't impact anyone. But who are we to say that we can go against God, sin, and believe that our sin won't affect anyone else. Right? Broken homes, broken churches, broken marriages, broken nations come from this mentality that we know best, that it doesn't matter what happens. If it gives us a moment of pleasure, then it's worth seeking. Pharaoh serves as the archetype of a hardened heart, and we look at him, we, we do a study of him, and we see what an unchecked heart looks like. We see what it can look like for you to have a hardened heart. We have this standard here of what it looks like to be completely resisting the, the Lord, what it looks like to not soften your heart, what it looks like to not put yourself in a posture of submission and obedience. Pharaoh shows that he is willing to sacrifice all of his people, his own family, his servants, his priests, his magicians, 
He's willing to sacrifice everyone so that his deity can remain in place. He does not care who it impacts. He will not be defeated by Yahweh. He is willing to sacrifice everything and everyone. The third thing that we, we can learn from this passage is that we must see that the Lord is just in showing wrath and in showing mercy. He's just. So in this, this tale of two firstborns that we see in Exodus, Yahweh is perfectly just in pouring out wrath on the Egyptian firstborn. And he is perfectly just in showing grace to the Hebrew firstborn, to his people. He's perfectly just in this. We've touched on this a little bit, but I want to I end this, this, this thought process that we've been journeying through, that Yahweh is perfectly just. Right? You can't look at this passage for the first time, or even for the 10th or the 20th or the 30th time, and say, how is the Lord just in doing this? How is he just in doing this? Those Egyptian firstborn, they didn't do anything, right? They, they didn't do anything. We've got to have a better standard for what justice looks like than just saying they didn't deserve that. They, were, they didn't do anything. But we have, us being biblical Christians, us having a biblical theology of sin, we know that people are born into slavery to sin, that people are born with a proclivity to rebel against the Lord, that our proclivity as human beings when we are born is to not seek Lord, the Lord, to not believe the gospel. So everyone is born onto that equal playing field. Because of our federal head, Adam, so that means, so because of Adam's sin, we are now born into the sin nature. We are now born into a family line that has been rebellious against God. And so when we look at Egypt, because of Pharaoh being the head of Egypt, because of his rebellion, because of his hard-heartedness, his family was going to be punished. His firstborn was going to be punished. And God is just in pouring out that wrath. And in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul talks about this. Right? The Apostle Paul quotes some, some text from Exodus 33. And he's defending God's sovereignty. He's defending God's uh, his, um, sovereign choice of who comes into his family. And he says this in, starting in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he, Yahweh, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Right? And there's, there's an aspect, an element of mystery here that we can't, grab, we can't wrap our minds around, and we wish that in Romans 9 Paul would put a nice bow on all that, but he just kind of leaves his hand in the tension there. But we, we have to understand that no one is deserving of God's grace. No one is deserving of God's favor. We might think it's heinous and evil for God to extend and to pour out wrath on someone, but if we are using that same standard, it would also be evil for God to pour out grace and mercy on someone. Right? If, if we're just saying that, we're, that, oh, they don't deserve the bad things, but everybody deserves the good things, right? Until it's somebody you don't like and they don't deserve the good things. We have to understand that God's definition of justice is different. And he will be just in his pouring out of wrath and his pouring out of grace. In his hardening of hearts and in his softening of hearts. And we'll see a sign of what that means next week when we look at Exodus 12. 
Yahweh will make a way for people to be made just and right in his sight. And the last thing that I think we can learn from this text is that we must look to Jesus for how to respond to the voice of the Lord. We've looked at this narrative. We've looked at a man. We've looked at an empire who would not relent, who would not obey the voice of Yahweh, who would not repent and turn around and move in the opposite direction and be submissive. So we've got to, we have to look to Jesus, right? That's, that's an easy Bible Sunday school answer. We've got to look to Jesus for that. But we, we look to Jesus, and we're not going to spoil next week's sermon or next week's Bible reading, but, but we've got to look to Jesus to what, what is a soft heart looks like. So Pharaoh is the archetype of what a hard heart looks like. Jesus is the archetype of what a soft heart looks like. If we're looking for a perfect example of evil and of hard-heartedness, we look to Pharaoh. But if we're looking for the, the perfect example of what submission and obedience and a soft heart looks like, we, we, look, to, we look to Jesus. And so I want to... I want to help us see Jesus and to see his soft heart, soft-heartedness. And, and we're going to end with this. And my prayer is that, that the Spirit would use this to lead us to repentance, that he would use this to keep us to pursue it. So that this knowledge that we've been growing in of Pharaoh and of what hard-heartedness looks like and what repentance looks like and what idolatry looks like, my prayer and our pastoral team's prayer has been that this would make us look more like Jesus as we open up God's word together because God's word changes us. So some of us here, we're currently living self-deified lives. We've made ourselves gods and we've hardened our hearts. We've sinned against God and it's affected every square inch of our lives. But we continue to resist God and his commands nonetheless. We've been confronted. Every time when we gather together and open up the scriptures, if you are a believer of Jesus, you are being confronted to repent. God's spirit convicts and it pokes and prods in the dark parts of our hearts it pokes around the parts of our hearts that we didn't know existed. Right, when we gather together, when we open up this book, if we believe that this book has come from the Lord, this book ought to shape and inform us. And so if we're living counter to what this book, what the Lord's word tells us, then we are walking in sin. And so when we come together on Sunday mornings, we've got to say, this is the standard by which I am to live. And so some of us here, we, are, we have increased our hard-heartedness. We're, we're, we're far from the Lord we're, we're living rebellious and unrepentant lives. God is speaking to you right now to repent and to be obedient and to follow Jesus. When we open up the scriptures, that's what happens. The Spirit uses the scriptures to lead us in repentance. God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's not out of his unkindness. It's out of his kindness that he leads us to repentance. And so if you are living right now in a way that is counter to the scriptures, if you're living in a way right now that is irrational because of your hard-heartedness, if you're living in a way right now that your sin and your hard-heartedness is causing you to, uh, to in, in your, the effects of your sin are impacting those around you, God right now, by the power of his word, is telling you not to be like Pharaoh. He's telling you not to be like Pharaoh. He's telling you to look to Jesus, who didn't give in to temptation, who didn't seek to have himself deified in a, in a way that was counter to what his identity was. He could, when the temptation, what was happening was the serpent, the, the, the tempter, the Satan, was trying to get Jesus to exalt himself. Jesus knew good and well who he was and how he would be exalted. He chose to stay the course. He chose to be submissive. He chose to fight temptation. He chose to resist the devil and to be exalted at the perfect time. He didn't try to subvert God's plan for him to be exalted Look to Jesus. Do not try to exalt yourself. Repent of your sin and walk in obedience. 
and others of us in this room, we're, we're growing weary of doing good. We're growing weary of having a soft heart because having a soft heart, it, it opens you up for wounds. It opens you up for disappointment. It opens you up to feeling defeated at times because you feel like you're just taking a beating day in and day out. It's, it's tiresome. But Jesus, and we sang earlier, what a friend we have in Jesus if we're weak and heavy laden, we can take our burdens, we can take our troubles to Jesus. Right? Don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of resisting a hard heart. I know that some of us in this room, we're trying to make sense of what our vocational lives look like. Some of us in this room, we're, we're trying to bring some consistency to our work schedule. Some of us in this room are, are dealing with disobedient children. Some of us in this room are in financial ruin and tragedy right now. Some of us in this room, we are dealing with broken marriages. Some of us in this room are trying to get pregnant and nothing is happening. Some of us in this room have lost family members and friends recently. Don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of become, becoming conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We have been given the, the example for what a soft heart looks like. We are to walk forward and, and repentance. And so as we go to take up the cup and the bread in a few moments, let, that, let the, the image of Christ persuade you and, and cause you to be persevered. Family, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond together in a couple of minutes.